Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Los Angeles Metro going cashless is a bumpy road, especially for the unbanked. Some 40% of LA Metro riders pay the old way with cash. Here are today's headlines. Learn lessons by UAW 2865, UCLA strikers, of a two-part series. Anti-American sentiment is widespread in Somalia. Harry Belafonte. President of Venezuela may exile in Miami, Florida. International news from outside the NATO-controlled media sphere. And the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Each year, the Gold Hirsch Foundation grants $1 million to nonprofit organizations making L.A. better through the L.A. 2050 Grants Challenge by taking a different approach to grant making. This foundation asks Angelinos to vote for the issues they want to fund from homelessness and income inequality to park access. This year's issue voting will be taking place on LA2050.org. That's LA2050.org from April 6th to May 8th, 2023. Open to all ages and available in 10 languages. However, for the first time, they will also launch a pop-up voting experience in Council District 10 at the iconic Lamert Park Art Walk, 3333 43rd Place in Africatown on Sunday, April 30th from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. Councilwoman Heather Hutt of CD10 will be in attendance. Hutt states, quote, It is up to us to shape the future we want to create. The LA 2050 Grants Challenge is an amazing opportunity for the community to raise their voice and vote for funding in areas where they are facing issues. You can go to LA2050.org and see how you can participate in this year's um, issue voting. Last week, students, community members, health justice advocates, and artists joined the Standing for Black Girls Coalition to amplify the lives of black women and girl victims and survivors of sexual and domestic violence, abduction, and homicide. As a follow-up action, Standing for Black Girls Coalition analyzed the City of Los Angeles report on violence against black women and girls and will be addressing next steps with the Department of Civil and Human Rights and Equity on expanding resources and funding for prevention and intervention services. A few of the data points from the report include, although black women comprise approximately 4.3% of L.A. City's population, they are approximately 25 to 33% of female victims of violence. Black women accounted for one-third of all female homicides from 2011 to 2022. Black women were 23.12% of all domestic violence victims, about 40,597 individuals, and 29.37% of female domestic violence victims. If you or anyone you know is experiencing intimate partner violence, contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233 or visit thehotline.org. Los Angeles Department of Public Social Services wants to warn all Medi-Cal customers to be aware of scammers who use threats to obtain payment in exchange for continued Medicare 
coverage. They explain it's important to remember renewals never require a fee. DPSS will never call you requesting payment information. You can update your address at benefits.com or at your local Los Angeles Department of Public Social Services office. City News Service reports that this week marks the 108th anniversary of the start of the Armenian Genocide, widely viewed by scholars as the first genocide of the 20th century. On April 24, 1915, Ottoman Authorities arrested hundreds of Armenian intellectuals and community leaders, kickstarting two years of violence in which an estimated 1.5 million Armenians were killed. Turkey denies that the deaths constituted a genocide, saying the toll has been inflated and that those killed were the victims of civil war and unrest. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill last September establishing Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day as a state holiday, permitting all public schools and community colleges in the state to close in to close in on observance for that. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Next, the lessons learned by UAW 2865 UCLA strikers are being raised in the upcoming election for stewards. Here's Steve Zeltzer with a report. This is Steve Zeltzer with KPFK, and we've covered the struggle of the University of California UAW graduate students, researchers who went on strike, and the struggle to win a decent living condition, their fight for COLA, what happened in that strike. And joining us today is Lavanya Knott. She's a graduate student at UCLA, and she's been involved in the union, and particularly as a result of that strike, and is running for office. So welcome to our show, Lavanya. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. So why don't you introduce yourself, first of all? Uh, what kind of things are you studying? And So I'm, I'm like you said, I'm a third-year PhD student in geography at, UC, at the University of California in Los Angeles. Um, and I, my, my research interests are on post on imperialism in the post-World War II era, and I look at uh, particular instances of third world internationalism, um, focusing in particular on agrarian and food um, questions and how they were sort of resolved and and analyzed from the third world perspective. And you were part of the strike. Why don't you talk about why you went on strike, the the issues you have as a graduate student, your fellow workers, and also what you learned in the strike? Yeah, so we went on strike um, last year uh, in November and December for, and we were on strike for about six weeks. And uh, many of our demands were, were economic. We are, at the time that we went on strike, our um, nine month pay, we were only paid for nine months of the year was, uh, the base pay was $24,000, which as you can imagine is not a living wage in any city in California. Um, and so, one of our demands was that we um, get a COLA, which is a cost of living adjustment, which would essentially tie our wages or index our wages to the cost of living in um, in in the 10 cities in which UC campuses are located. Um, and so the movement of the strike was, was built out of. Um, but we also had other demands, for example, the defunding of the UC police department, um, better uh, depend, dependent healthcare, uh, greater protections for disabled workers, um, and, and, and lots of things like that. The abolition of uh, these extra fees that international students or non-residential uh, students have to pay, which are pretty exorbitant. It can, can be up to $15,000 a year. And so we had a whole host of, of demands, um, but primarily the sort of the impetus or the inspiration for the strike came out of um, the economic situation that we all face um, that is pretty untenable. And workers in California, workers in the United States, all over the world, as a result of inflation now, are suffering severely. Oh, yeah, just, definitely. Just being able to make a living. And I understand they're, they're homeless graduate students and graduate students are trying to survive in Los Angeles or the Bay Area on, on the salaries can't do it. Yeah, uh, and I think that's particularly true of students who don't come from generational wealth um, or students who have families that they support. But yeah, I think our reunion has done surveys of, of workers and and there are definitely workers who are unhoused um, across the 10 cities in which campuses are located. In one of the richest countries of the world and the richest state in the world, California, yeah. with a $100 billion surplus in the budget. So Yeah, it's ironic. And 
so what were some of the lessons you learned in that strike? Yeah, well, well, you know, there were so many lessons that we learned, but I think it was really powerful to witness the, the power of our strike. You know, thousands of workers um, stayed across the state, of course, but on our campus, thousands of workers um, were out on the picket line every day or, you know, doing remote picket shifts and were really invested in or in this understanding of the union as this vehicle for political and economic transformation. Um, and it was a really sort of beautiful movement to be a part of, uh, but it, I think it gave us great cl clarity on the on the source and strength of our, uh, uh, I guess the source of our power, our ability to, to, to withhold our labor is really where our power lies. Um, and that's something that was sort of debated a lot on the picket line because, you know, there was this sort of uh, other vision of our power that relied on, you know, mostly, that came maybe from primarily from leadership that saw our power as lying in our ability to maybe annoy the regions um, as opposed to our, uh, the strength that we have from over an extended period of time withholding our labor, withholding grades and working in coalition with other unions on campus and off to sort of support our strike. And of course, other workers, uh, the teachers, the service workers, SEIU service workers had a big strike. It seems like there is a growing strike wave in this country and that uh, the idea of unifying the working class uh, for COLA, for example, for all workers, seems like something that actually should be worked towards uh, so that there's a unification of the working class. I think so. Yeah. And I think I think many of us agree with you on that. And something that I think um, maybe across the political spectrum in our union, that is something that we are all invested in is joining forces with other unions, sort of riding on this sort of strike wave, this sort of labor militancy that we're seeing in the country and turning into, in, into something potentially powerful. But um, in, in, in LA in particular, I think we're really uh, interested in working together with tenants unions, definitely with SEIU and the lecturers unions on our campus. Uh, many of us showed up in solidarity with, uh, with the recent uh, strike in public schools in LA. So yeah, that's something that's definitely high on our list of priorities. And there may be a strike of the CSU workers, 60,000 CSU workers are, oh. are also fighting and they may be going out. It seems like uh, the ability of these unions to link together would have a much more powerful effect on the state of California and the country if they link together. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. So you're running in an election uh, in the union. Uh, what would you like to see the union do differently and how do you think it should be better organized to defend yourself and other workers? Yeah, so so essentially, just to give you some context, we are um, on UCLA's campus, we have this caucus that's running as sort of a reform caucus in opposition to the incumbents who have um, held power for a number of years. And there are similar uh, reform caucus movements um, across the many of the, the UC campuses. And so essentially we're up against these incumbents who um, have for, for over the years centralized power and to, to a great extent vilified dissent. And this became really clear during our strike uh, last fall. For example, the bargaining team at UCLA got, gets its directives from leadership and from the U, from UAW staff who are paid out of our dues, um, but they don't necessarily take into account the demands of the members themselves. And so decisions were made behind closed doors and then just reported back to membership. And so there's this is sort of part of a pattern of gatekeeping in, of information and of organizing spaces um, that runs really deep in our union. Um, and the result was that many of our core demands were dropped in the early days or weeks of the strike. And this happened not only without consulting membership, but also in some often inactive defiance of members' demands. Um, and so in the wake of uh, that all, uh, in the fallout of the strike, um, in what we, we're, we're now sort of trying to, to set in stone new uh, sort of democratic practices, um, new practices of transparency within our union, as well as sort of making sure that the contract that we did get is implemented in uh, to our best capacity. And so um, while we do believe that that was a weaker contract than we could have won, um, we fully intend to implement it. Uh, but we do think that there are great changes that can be made in the organizing culture in our union. Um, we think an engaged in political membership is the touchstone of a strong union, as opposed to just uh, the, the leadership's uh, vision of, of a strong union, which is just based on high membership numbers. But we think the actual engagement of membership is really critical, which means turning member spaces and meetings into uh, spaces of act of deliberation and debate and having members be able to set the agenda and strategy of the union. Uh, we see that as really fundamental to a strong union culture on our campus.
KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Hi, everyone. I know you've heard our fundraisers and likely thought, yeah, I should likely give something back to KPFK. Well, now's the time to do it. We all understand the value of separating luxuries from necessities and deciding what's truly essential. KPFK is one of those essentials. We provide in-depth, cutting-edge, intelligent coverage, and it starts with our amazing staff and volunteer programmers and with your financial support. Contributions from our listeners add up to the largest share of funding that pays the bills here at KPFK. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, encouraging you to become a KPFK Sustainers Circle member now. A sustaining contribution of just $20 or more a month is one of the most popular levels for our donors, and it takes just minutes to contribute. Just go to kpfk.org slash support, then click Sustainer Circle, or call 818-985-2711. Thank you so much for your donation to KPFK, radio powered by the people. Yes, Margaret Prescott, KPFK is one of those essentials. So listen to the lady and become a Sustainer Circle member. Go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online or call 818-985-5735. Anti-American sentiment is widespread in Somalia, and the presence of U.S. troops in the country is often reported to serve as a recruiting tool for the terrorist group al-Shabaab. Now it's helping to inspire Somali unionists fighting Somaliland secessionists in the city of Las Anad and the surrounding regions. Pacifica's Anne Garrison spoke with Jamal Abdullahi, a Somali-American software engineer and writer who has family in the Seoul and Sanaji and Kane region. Jamal, what is the source of anti-American sentiment in Somalia? Well, there are a number of reasons. I think the biggest one is one of cultural. The Somalis happen to be overwhelmingly Muslim-Sunni majority nation with a conservative inclination. So the glamorous life of Hollywood doesn't resonate with the broader society of Somalia. There's also the issue of the United States' unimpeded support for Israel at the expense of Palestinians. So that offends a lot of Somalis as well. Now, there are more political reasons. For instance, in the 1976-77 war between Ethiopia and Somalia, Somalia asked United States for support after the Soviet Union sided with, with Ethiopia. But many Somalis felt that the United States turned them down and did not help. More recently, in 2006, the United States, under the leadership of George W. Bush, used Ethiopia defense forces as a proxy to crush a number of uh, grassroots groups under the banner of the Islamic Corps Union and uh, crushed that group and dispersed that group and captured Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. And that humiliated uh, Somalis. The, the level of humiliation at that time was just astounding when it comes to Somalis. And more recently, in the 2023 Defense Appropriation Act, there is a plan to be able to establish a base in this uh, northern city of Berbera. And that has triggered a brutal war that mostly revolves around in the city of Las Anot, and when where thousands are estimated to have been killed on both sides, many civilians in the city, as well as over 200,000 people being displaced. So that's more of the, uh, I think, some of the reasons that make the Somali public super angry with the United States policy in their country. How did Somalis in La Sanad and the Sul Sanag and Kain region learn about the plan to build the U.S. military base? So there are two things that work in Somalia. And that is a mobile broadband and in a digital currency. You would be hard-pressed to find any banknotes in Somalia. Everyone uses digital currency. And it's mostly done through mobile phones. And Somalia is washed with mostly Chinese manufactured inexpensive mobile phones. So a lot of people, including nomads that are in the middle of nowhere, get their news through social media. 
And uh, it, that's primarily how people learn about the uh, conflict. That's how people are learning about U.S.'s role in Somalia. And uh, including my own family member, my own relatives in the region are telling me how they heard about in, in the conflict was through their cell phones. So Maliland has regular forces with commanders in the regional government of Somaliland. But President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed has not sent the Somali National Army to help the people of Sul, Sanag, and Kain, even though they're nationalists. So the forces defending them are irregular forces. How were they formed and armed? That's a very good question, uh, because just a few months ago, not a single gun would be allowed in the city of Los Anos that did not have the uh, approval of the uh, secessionists. But in a, such a short period of time, there was this abundance of a, uh, a fighting force that wanted to a, a resist the idea of a, a secessionist. And uh, in a very short period of time, the secessionists actually lost quite a bit of territories in and around the city of a, a Los Anos. Right now, they're mostly concentrated in a military base called Gochade, which is uh, uh, several miles outside of the uh, city. The first wave of a, a military support came from the city of Buholde, and that is a very resistive city to secessionism, in which the secessionists did never control over their 30 years of a one or two a split in Somalia. So that is snowballed and invited many, many people to come to the uh, support and the rescue of Las Anod residents, including people that are nomads in the surrounding area who are out of their uh, self-conscious decided to join this struggle. So then there were various other clan affiliation and others that have sent reinforcements, but the primary arm, you know, a fighting force is, is local. And what outcome do you expect well, I certainly hope that this is coming to an end in a, a fairly conclusion. There are a number of proposals that have been, you know, put out that, but the first and foremost in which the leadership of uh, Las Anod and, uh, and more broadly, uh, Sol Sanaga 9 have been requesting the uh, uh, leader of the secessionist Musabihi to withdraw forces into the city of Og, which is about 90 to 100 miles north of Las Anod, and to allow discussions and conversations and negotiations to occur to bring this into an, an, a, a you know, peaceful conclusion because there have been enough bloodshed in this short period of time. But that doesn't seem to be likely. Musabi seems to be determined to a, uh, violently to take control of Las Anod. And his primary reason is to or a primary driver here is that he somehow erroneously concluded that if he left Las Anod or if he lost control of a Sol Senaganine, that somehow the United States will dump him as a uh, uh, you know as an in a you know or stop supporting him. That's one of the things that uh, you know he's definitely wrong about it. But right now he seems to be gearing up for more violence and more bloodshed. Well. EU and U.S. officials, they say that they asked Somaliland to withdraw from Sul Sanagankain and that they were disappointed when they did not. Do you think the U.S. and the EU officials were sincere in asking that they withdraw? I think they were, they were sincere, but they were not forceful in their uh, you know, request, enough such that it would force Musabili uh, to a uh, change of directions. I think the statement that they released was very weak, but I, if they were, uh, I think, more firm about it, they could have been more, more impactful. But I think their position of urging him to withdraw forces is valid one, and it has a broader support within the Somali peninsula. So you think to get them to really withdraw the U.S. would have had to say, basically, you no longer have our support if you don't withdraw from the region? Yes, I think that would uh, uh, definitely uh, make him think twice. The, uh, if the United States comes out of the gate and says, for instance, that uh, there is no such thing as Somaliland, this is a region of a sovereign that is part of the sovereign nation of Somalia, and we are going to uh, treat it as such. Okay, and if you don't do this in within you know very short period of time, then uh, uh, there will be a, some consequences. I think if the United States deploys all of its uh, uh, soft powers, they could be more effective. But they seem to be in a mode of an appeasement to the uh, secessionists. 
Well, I wasn't actually thinking if they said we won't accept Somaliland as an independent state, but what if they said we, we will not support you if you do not withdraw your troops from Asanad and the surrounding region? Yes, I think that that would be more impactful uh, position. They said uh, our, the United States will not support Argeisa and Mosambique anymore unless they withdraw. I think that would force him to think twice and may have changed his uh, thus far pasture of amassing more troops into the out- outskirts of Las Hanat. Okay, Jamal, thank you for speaking to Pacifica Radio. Thank you. Harry Belafonte died Tuesday of congestive heart failure at his New York home. He was 96 years old. Harry Belafonte told a teen activist theater troupe in Harlem in 2014 that, quote, the most powerful weapon that we have in the universe is the weapon of art, end of quote. From Prisons on Fire, George Jackson, Attica, and Black Liberation Documentary, here is Harry Belafonte speaking about George Jackson. A young man by the name of George Jackson in San Quentin wrote this letter to his mother three days before he was murdered. Harry Belafonte, performer and human rights activist. It was on the occasion of her birthday. Dear Mama, I hope this year's birthday finds you well. I would like to be able to give you things and take you places, but I've been unfortunate and slow learning. But I've learned well. Perhaps next year, I'll be able to give you a villa in Tanzania. On Saturday, August 21st, 1971, Soledad brother George Lester Jackson was shot to death by guards in the prison yard at San Quentin. If they kill me, Mama, he had written home in a letter, I'll just be dead, but I'll never kiss their feet. That Saturday afternoon, Georgia Jackson had rushed to San Quentin to learn of her son's fate. The guard at the gate said, Last year we killed one of your sons, and and today we killed another. If you aren't careful, you'll have no sons left. Georgia Jackson said to the guard, I have sons throughout the world wherever people are fighting for freedom. This is the Kingpin Shaheen from legendary Infinity 4FCs giving a shout out to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, y'all out. The man that Washington pretended was the president of Venezuela arrived earlier this week at what likely will be his home in exile, Miami, Florida. Don DeBar has more. We think it's uh, still very important for key uh, figures in the regime to uh, achieve the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, from the Maduro clique to interim president Juan Guaido. That was the former U.S. national security advisor and now current Republican presidential candidate John Bolton speaking four years ago from the White House in the midst of demonstrations and an attempted uprising by the opposition in Venezuela, backed, of course, by Washington. Juan Guaido is uh, out on the streets of Caracas now. He's rallying the people. He's called for the people to come out, and they are. They are increasingly on the streets. As I think many of you know, there were mass demonstrations planned for tomorrow. Uh, The circumstances of uh, what's happened today uh, in Caracas have called people out all over the country. Uh, So uh, Guaido is behaving in the same courageous way he and other figures in the opposition have these last three months. Fast forward four years, Juan Guaido has arrived in Miami, and it may well end up being his permanent home. The man who was essentially appointed by Bolton and the Trump administration as the president of Venezuela 
much to the astonishment of the rest of the world, including the Venezuelan people and the country's elected president, Nicolas Maduro, is now a refugee in the United States. The opposition leader landed at dawn Tuesday, saying he was thrown out of Colombia when that country's president, Gustavo Petro, hosting an international summit on Venezuela, deported him to the United States. To discuss this and more, we're joined by two journalists from the region, Stephen Sefton, who spoke with us from Esteli, Nicaragua, and Camila Escalante, who spoke with us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Okay, Stephen and Camilla, I'm sorry, uh, I couldn't resist. Let's start with this uh, summit in Colombia that had the high point of uh, liberating the people of Venezuela from a bad joke. Well, precisely. So Petro had a bright idea. Of course, Petro, you know, is trying to position himself as some sort of leader in the region. And he, from the very beginning of his administration, decided to reopen, reestablish diplomatic relations, political relations with neighboring Bolivar in Venezuela. And that, of course, was a good thing. They've reopened several of the land borders there uh, and the, you know, the west side of Venezuela uh, with uh, Colombia, including the Cucuta Bridge. This is extremely important. But now he decided to uh, promote this summit in Bogota, which would include 20 countries, um, among them representation, which were ambassadors, other representatives from different countries, including the EU's Joseph Borrell. So a number of, of, of parties there participated in this meeting yesterday in Bogota. And if you look at the list of this 20 countries, it's a lot of countries that are not friendly with Venezuela. In fact, a lot of them uh, took the side of Washington when Juan Guaido swore himself in as some sort of leader of the country. And so it's very bizarre what's taken place. Um, it's bizarre that Petro would kind of have this dialogue because, of course, what they're trying to do is talk about the political situation in Venezuela. And they say that they want to bring Venezuela, the government, uh, led by President Nicolas Maduro, of course, and the Chavistas, back to the table to have dialogue with this far-right sector of the opposition. But the fact is that the government, as stated by President Nicolas Maduro, as stated by the president of the National Assembly, uh, Jorge Rodriguez, have said that they have very specific demands if they're going to resume dialogue with the sector of the opposition. And those demands are first and foremost the lifting completely of all unilateral course of measures, all sanctions illegally imposed on Venezuela, and also the freedom, the, the liberation of political prisoner in the United States, Alex Saab. And so these are some of the things that they're asking for right now in order to sit down with, uh, with this sector of the opposition. But there's absolutely no reason, um, in my view, and I think from the view of anyone who is anti-imperialist and hence has seen what damage the international community, quote unquote, has done to Venezuela by trying to intervene and really trying to, to mediate. I'm not sure that this is helpful. I'm not sure that the average Venezuelans see what's going on in Bogota as helpful, uh, but they held it nevertheless. Come negotiate with us while we have a gun to your head. And they're saying that's not negotiating and we're not doing that, basically. And, and of course, they don't need to because the government does, in fact, enjoy wide support in Venezuela, or more so than it did at the last election, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and lots of support from the international community. Um, you know, remember that a lot of these countries that maybe broke diplomatic relations at some period or had uneasy relations such as the so-called Lima Group, they've actually resumed relations and they have their ambassadors back in Caracas now. They've exchanged ambassadors and they're resuming trade and everything else. So Venezuela was in no way isolated. Previously, and it's even less so now. It has enjoys very good relations with all of these countries. So, you know, they really don't really have a lot to... Uh, to, to try to blacklist the government with. And I think, you know, Nicolas Maduro is looking forward to the elections where he's going to be running again as president, it seems. 
Yeah, and one of the things to bear in mind is that the results of this um, summit that was organised by Gustavo Petro were very much along uh, classical um, centre-right social democrat lines, talking about the need for free and fair elections and so on. And they, they in, in effect, they set out, although they didn't frame it as conditions, they set out kind of what they uh, propose as a series of uh, what they regard as reasonable requirements with which the Venezuelan government should comply in order for its demands, as the, Camilla has just pointed out, principally the lifting of all sanctions both by the United States and the European Union. Um, they, uh, and the, that, that explains probably why the Venezuelan government's response has been somewhat muted. I mean, they've just, they've just been very polite, um, saying that they... Uh, and this is a quote, take note, end quote, of the um, declaration that finished the conference that was organized by um, Gustavo Petra in Colombia with, with all those countries, the most important of which from Venezuela's point of view, probably, is Mexico, which is uh, the country that was the site of the previous round of negotiations with Venezuela's right-wing opposition, and the other thing that uh, was interesting in relation to this conference, um, Don and Camila, as you, you, you both commented before we began our conversation, is that um, Juan Guaido tried to uh, break into the, the conference, as it were. He tried to, almost tried to gate-crash the conference, <laughs> crossing, crossing the border illegally from Venezuela into Colombia. And he could perfectly well have been locked up for that by Gustavo Petro That's and the right. Colombian authorities. Yep. But uh, Petro and the Colombian authorities treated him with kid gloves um, and allowed him to get on a plane to... Um, to Miami, as I understand it. But the, 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 one of the interesting things about that is that um, whereas much of uh, the international news coverage of that incident spoke of Guaido being expelled from Colombia, in fact, Gustavo Petro and his government spokespeople said that he wasn't expelled, he was just asked to get on the plane. Finally, uh, just in terms of the new role that Colombia is playing in the region. Um, I mean, this is clearly a, a shift, you know, given the uh, re results of the last election in terms of the direction of uh, Colombia's government. Do you see uh, an increased role going forward for Colombia or, or, or in any event more of, of their uh, playing sort of regional actor? Every single day is a test for Colombia. I think we need to be watching very closely at what the role is of Gustavo Petro and his government. Right now, yesterday, he asked for the resignation of his of his cabinet ministers. And so there's a lot going on in Colombia. Internally, they have a lot of issues. They haven't even begun to deal with any of the issues they have in terms of uh, the violence on the countryside in terms of the paramilitaries and the drug cartels, which still exist, there's still vast DEA presence. And of course, the U.S. military bases in Colombia. It's an occupied territory in the Americas. It is literally a U.S. doormat country. And Colombia's government needs to deal with that. They can't be sitting around trying to pretend to be mediators or leaders on anything, certainly not human rights. It is literally the most backwards country in terms of human rights, where people suffer for being uh, Afro uh, Afro-Colombian for being indigenous and for being working class. There's a lot of issues yeah. internally. Colombia is not in a position right now to be any sort of leader. I don't think ideologically Petro is the right person to lead this region. And so I think that they really need to look internally, deal with their problems, and leave the leadership for other countries such as Nicaragua or Venezuela itself, which are really, you know, putting forth some very important proposals, both in terms of for what they're developing in their countries and externally for, you know, what they're proposing for a multipolar world. Yeah, for the moment, I think um, Gustavo Petro is going to project himself as a champion of social democracy in the region, and he'll call, he'll paint that, he'll depict that as being progressive. When in fact, as Camila says, he's very much a, 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 a under the thumb of the United States. And one of the among the foreign policy issues, along with all the domestic issues that Camilla mentioned, is the very thorny issue of what, how he's going to manage his relations with the People's Republic of China. Mm. Yeah, which is a very key one in this region. Okay, well, uh, the clock is our master today. We're out of time and appreciate your time. And uh, we'd like to further develop these issues as we've been doing uh, sometime next week. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting Thank me. Thank you, Don. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar.
KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. KPFK needs your continued support to persevere in the struggle for free expression. KPFK is a free speech radio committed to uncensored discourse and also to protecting and extending freedom of cultural expression. Please make a generous donation today to support free speech during our spring on-air drive, which continues through to Sunday, April 30th. So you have a few days left, but even outside of our spring drive, you can still donate. Now, I know last week I had said I found this very interesting way that they have broken down KPFK. KPFK is your key to peace, making freedom and knowledge. I love that. I just love it. Oh, and by the way, my nephew is here again with me. William, yes. That that's how that's how we do it here at KPFK. We listen generationally. We work generate generationally. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. So please go to kpfk.org, become a subscriber. Donate whatever it is that you have. If it's $5, if it's $50, if it's $500, if it's $5,000, give it $50,000. Some of you guys got it, right? So why not give it to a place that we do strong and independent um, news, um, source of music, arts, and, and information. And we provide a place for generational listenership. So go to kpfk.org or call 818 818- Nine eight five five seven three five, and let's keep our community free speech radio going. All right. Well, here is today's international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. The UN-centric system is currently going through a deep crisis. The root cause of this was the desire of individual members of this organization to replace international law and the UN Charter with a sort of rules-based order. But no one has actually seen these rules. They have not been the subject of transparent international negotiations. The result is the fragmentation of global trade, the collapse of market mechanisms, the paralysis of the WTO and the final undisguised transformation of the IMF into an instrument for achieving the goals of the US and its allies, including military objectives. That was Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov at a United Nations Security Council meeting earlier this week. RT's Caleb Maupin has more. Well, with Russia leading the Security Council for the month of April, we got to hear the long-anticipated remarks by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. When he was speaking, he touched on the fact that multinational institutions are being corrupted by the United States, and they're essentially not serving the international purpose of maintaining peace and prosperity for which they were intended. Now, he touched on U.S. efforts in the Pacific right now, which seem to be provoking confrontation with China. Here's what he had to say. There are mechanisms of intervention in maritime security issues which are being created under the auspices of the United States with an eye to ensuring the unilateral interests of the West in the waters of the South China Sea. It is no secret that the goal of the Indo-Pacific strategies is to contain China and isolate Russia. This is how our Western colleagues interpret effective multilateralism in the Asia-Pacific region. Now elsewhere in his remarks he focused on how Russia sees essentially the economic benefits that come from globalization not playing out because of efforts by the United States to maintain dominance and the United States efforts to isolate Russia have resulted in disrupting food supply chains, the energy markets. However, if countries could trade with each other on the basis of win-win cooperation, things could certainly improve. Uh, here's what he said further in his remarks. 
Genuine multilateralism at the present stage requires the adaptation of the UN to objective trends of formation of a multipolar architecture of international relations. It is necessary to accelerate the reform of the Security Council by increasing the representation of Asian, African and Latin American countries in it. The current excessive over-representation of the West in this main UN body undermines the very principle of multilateralism. It's important to note that the Russian foreign minister was unable to be accompanied by the journalists who generally travel with him. Their visas were not made available by U.S. officials. And he touched on this uh, when he arrived in New York City, as well as in his remarks before the council. Uh, he touched on how this effort uh, is essentially suppressing the ability of the world to hear the message that Russia, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, had to say before this 15-member body that leads the United Nations. However, uh, he emphasized in his remarks uh, that Russia seeks a world of multipolarity, where countries can trade with each other on a win-win cooperation basis, and militaristic confrontations are not promoted and escalated. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has found himself in hot water after boasting that he never forced the COVID jab on anyone. And therefore, while not forcing anyone to get vaccinated, I chose to make sure that all the incentives and all the protections were there to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice, but don't think you can get on a plane or a train besides vaccinated people and put them at risk. If you joined the protests because you're tired of COVID, you now need to understand that you're breaking laws. During the pandemic, Trudeau government enforced some of the most brutal anti-COVID measures, which included travel restrictions and compulsory vaccinations for adults and children aged 12 and older. The draconian measures sparked protests across the country, including the famous Freedom Convoy, which started in Ottawa as a rally of truckers against vaccine mandates and culminated in emergency measures announced by the government. The recent remarks sparked a social media storm accusing the Canadian Prime Minister of hypocrisy. Right. He did not force anyone to get vaccinated. He only unjustly fired them, financially attacked them, persecuted them, insulted them, denied them basic rights, prevented them from traveling, etc. So tolerant. Justin Trudeau, who implemented some of the most brutal vaccine mandates on earth, and punished anyone who opposed it, now claims that he never forced the shot on anyone. When politicians can't beat the truth, they try to join you. Don't let them. Holy <laughs> Justin Trudeau, the man who locked down his country, stopped unvaccinated from attending work, shops, restaurants, pubs, hospitals, schools, flights, or even driving trucks across the border, says, I never forced anyone to get the vaccine. Independent political analyst Alessandro Bruno told RT protesters were jailed for protesting vaccine mandates in Canada. Completely unsurprised because um, I'm not sure whether he's absolutely convinced of his own position on this. He, he might actually believe it. Who knows? Um, these days it's very difficult to distinguish a sincere politician from an insincere one. He did not force anyone in his mind. Of course, people were arrested, uh, were in jail uh, uh, because they uh, protested uh, the COVID uh, vaccines and uh, some of the related uh, restrictions. The most famous episodes here involve the truck protests that took place throughout Canada, but especially in Ottawa and Toronto, which were concluded with the entry of uh, the army. I don't blame Trudeau alone. I, I see Trudeau as a symptom of a wider problem that affected the West in, and continues to affect the West in general. I, I see the same syndrome as having taken over with regards to the, uh, the West's position on the war in Ukraine. 
China and a number of other issues. They are acting in unison and they are acting incorrectly. I honestly don't see him as even thinking his own thoughts. He's not conveying his own thoughts here. He, it's as if many leaders in the West and perhaps Trudeau more than most are acting out the script of someone else, the script written elsewhere. Uncertainty grows around vital energy supply and storage capacity for the European Union. Jerome Hughes reports from Brussels. The EU's industry and economy was built thanks to decades of cheap gas supply from Russia. Now the bloc has shut that supply off due to the war in Ukraine. A mild winter ensured reasonable energy storage was maintained in the EU and prices, while very high, did not bring the bloc to breaking point. The US has made a fortune by exporting LNG, liquefied natural gas, to the 27-nation bloc. Lawmakers warn there could be greater competition for LNG in 2023. to return to 2021 LNG consumption levels, the EU could end up with a gap between demand and supply of 27 billion cubic meters, which is no small amount. Citizens need to be reassured. We can't just pray for another mild winter. There have been calls during a European Parliament debate for the EU to urgently up its game regarding energy storage technology. The EU has only a limited amount of storage capacity with the majority of energy being stored in the form of pumped hydro, which has significant geographical limitations. Experts warn that energy shortages in the coming months could push EU inflation through the roof. The bloc's leaders are looking towards Africa and the Middle East for supply, but that's a costly exercise. The problem is that European leadership is not leading Europe to a better future. The problem is that they are servants of American lobby and they're providing exclusively the interests of Americans. Iran could solve the EU's energy needs, but the bloc is following the United States down the path of sanctions. Given the dire implications associated with the potential energy crisis, many lawmakers here are calling on those who shape EU foreign policy to put the interests of citizens ahead of demands emanating from Washington. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News community calendar. Grease the Musical comes back to Huntington Park High School. Around 1978, Grease was filmed at Huntington Park High School, and now they are bringing one of the top grossing musicals back to HP, Thursday, April 27th at 6 p.m. And Saturday, April 29th, 12 p.m., the director is April Parker. For more information, search on Eventbrite for Grease the Musical, Huntington Park High School. Join comedian Donna Cooper at Governor's in Levittown on Long Island, New York, Friday, April 28th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. For details, go to govs.com, that's G-O-V-S dot com, or call 516-731-3358. Meet up and laugh hard and loud with Donna Cooper. Yes, for some stand-up comedy. All righty, pull up at the wall on 50th and Crenshaw in partnership with Keep It Run 100 for a 5K run, food, activities, and to celebrate an L.A. iconic landmark, Saturday, April 29th, 9.30 a.m. Follow Keep It Run 100 on IG for more info. International Jazz and Arts Festival at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, featuring artists such as Layla Hathaway, Marcus Miller, and more, Saturday, April 29th, in the Dignity Health Sports Park Tennis Stadium in Carson. Get moving, stay social, and improve your well-being with Move 50-plus program. Join the City of Long Beach for free movement classes starting in May with instructor-led classes, free meals, and health education and resources. Call 562-285-3228 to reserve your spot and check out April Park 
aprilparker.org for details. aprilparker.org for details. Los Angeles multi-instrumentalist and composer Nyella Hunter provides a closing performance Thursday, April 27th, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the California African African American Museum. Check out caamuseum.org for more info. Charisma Entertainment presents the return of 510, the World Music Fusion Band, to, to perform their May Music Melodies concert, a single de Mayo celebration, Wednesday, May 3rd at the Catalina Jazz Club, 6725 Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Doors open at 7 p.m. The show starts at 8.30 p.m. For more information, go to CatalinaJazzClub.com. Follow 510 on all social media platforms. NAMI Walks of Greater Los Angeles County invites you to join them for their Mental Health Fest and Walks Saturday, April 29th, 2 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Los Angeles, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Los Angeles State Historic Park. For information about this free event, check out namiwalks.org forward slash L.A. County. Miles Ahead of Cancer continues to honor the legacy of their son, who was diagnosed with brain cancer at the age of three. Join them at Walk for Kids on Saturday, April 29th at the Pasadena Rose Bowl Stadium. For details, go to Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, aheadofcancer.org. That's milesaheadofcancer.org. Range Projects Gallery presents From the Edges exhibit with artists Juan Sil Kim and Peggy Sivert. This exhibit runs until April 30th at Range Projects Gallery, 3718 West Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles. Call 323-738-2689 for more details. Project Rain Project hours are Thursdays, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., Fridays and Saturdays, 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. In celebration of African American Women's Fitness Month, join Black Women for Wellness for a hiking adventure at Griffith Park, Saturday, April 29th at 8.30 a.m. Next month, BWW begins their five-week mental health series every Wednesday in May. For more information about Black Women for Wellness and to sign up for these events, go to bwwla.org. Well, this has been your community calendar um, tips. I'm Angela Birds with More Than a Sparrow Productions, and you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. KPFK is a non-commercial listener-sponsored educational radio with programming for your open mind as well as your heart, your spirit, your physical wellness, and your social connections. We are in our spring fun drive, you guys. So remember, KPFK is your key to peacemaking, freedom, and knowledge. And KPFK closes the generation gap. You guys, my adult nephew is here with me. How many of you guys got adult nieces and nephews that want to hang with you? Well, that's what happens at KPFK. We got that kind of magic going on. So, you guys, my family, we're four generations strong with KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Maybe you are from a small family. Maybe you have no family. Maybe you want to make KPFK your family. Come on, join us. Join me and my family with a monthly subscription, annual donation, quarterly. Simply give what you can. We will love your support to stay the course, to renew and refresh our commitment and our engagement with new generations and new communities. So go to kpfk.org and click donate. And of course, you can call 818-985-5735. Well, thank you to our engineer, Wendell Handy. And I see my nephew, William Owens, is in there on the board also. And all the Rebel Alliance News contributors. Join us tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. And coming up next is Feminist Magazine. Thank you.
With the new car business down right now, you might think that we don't need your vehicle donation. However, the market for donated vehicles is very strong. Please donate your old car, truck, RV, or motorcycle to us at 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. Or online at kpfk.org. We'll take care of everything, and you'll help support the quality programming you hear on KPFK. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO.